I ain't no psycho man. I'm a hero. I'm a hero of the new world. Your disease, and I'm the cure. Welcome, everybody, to the new sports order. A little little fresh music today. A little Cobra Coat quote to start it off. If you can't tell, our uh, summer blockbuster for this week is Sylvester Stallone's Cobra. We will be getting into that in the second half of our show after we talk some sports that's right you all are the disease and we are the cure i wouldn't go that far i mean but yeah i mean i guess i don't want to be the psycho in the store let's we gotta save the cobra talk i got notes the lack of sports is the disease and we're the cure there you go that could be i like and, and by lack i mean i turned on the tv the red Sox are on the west coast like the only sports happening is uh, Florida and Carolina. Florida's up 3-0 in their series in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, let's start there. Lackluster conference finals in both sports that the Nuggets sweep the Lakers. Right now, I think Vegas is up 3-0 on Dallas and uh, the NHL, and yep. Florida's up 3-0 on Carolina, which is a just wild matchup in the NHL. And then the Celtics finally won a game, so we have a 3-1 series. I wonder what you could have got for odds if you had bet the Florida Panthers 8 seed and Miami Heat 8 seed to both make the finals in their respective leagues before both playoffs started. Wow. No, that, that that's a great question because, I mean, hell, the Heat were a play-in. I mean, they, they almost didn't beat the Chicago Bulls yeah. in the play-in game. After getting so, absolutely housed by Atlanta in the first play-in game. Yeah, so if you think of it, yeah, if you had bet after they lost to Atlanta, I mean, even after they escaped Chicago, I mean, the odds probably didn't change much. Uh, I mean, probably better because they were actually in the playoffs at that point, but... I mean, th- think of this, and and this hurts as a, a Bruins fan, but I mean, Florida was starting the Lions kid in goal. The first three games of their series with the Bruins fell behind two to one, and then Bobrovsky comes in, loses game four, it's three one Bruins. Looks like they're gonna you know gentleman sweep in the first round. Bobrovsky catches fire. The Bruins lose three straight by narrow margins. I mean very close in game seven like we, we were this close to the Bruins hanging on in game seven and advancing we would, wouldn't even be talking about the Florida Panthers right now and instead they are you know a period away from going to the Stanley Cup final yeah it's like what one little thing changes there and and it, it was what it was an empty net game. goal to tie it in the third period of game seven did I make that up uh yeah it was an empty netter with like 45 seconds left or just under a minute. So, oh yeah, absolutely. Pulled the goalie. The chips in the middle of the table. Jesus. And the Bruins had just missed. Remember, the Bruins had just missed like a minute nine where they sailed on just wide of an empty net. So it almost was a two-goal game and you know, probably goes wildly different. So now you know, things, things I was fully prepared 
And I think I was talking to Justin the other day about what we had going on this week. And I said, yeah, Sterling and I are ready to go on Wednesday. We'll talk about how the Celtics just got swept out of the playoffs, and I'll be pissy about it. Instead, they actually kind of looked like the Celtics again. And the real stars of the game that everyone wanted to talk about, Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter, they put them on TV with the Boston team down three games to none. Celtics win, and I'm not going to lie, I felt good. I'm like, is this a sign? If tomorrow's if tomorrow's game five goes like two or three overtimes, because what game five against the Yankees went what fourteen innings? Yeah, I'm gonna but feel back pretty to back good about one, one game. Yeah, it was like nine hours of baseball. More than more than nine hours, twelve hours of baseball and twenty six hours or something crazy. Yeah, all the second second quarter they do the like everyone does in the play. Ooh, let's see all the celebrities here. And it, oh, it's Derek Jeter. And a little while longer, you see Alex Rodriguez with Anthony Edwards. I'm like, ooh, I like that. Celtics start to cruise. Good negative Yankees mojo. You will never find a podcast with a more accurate, deep cut from Celtic pride than... Daryl Hammond's character showing up at the finals game. I believe it was game six. He shows up. Dan Acker's like, ah, Chris McCarthy. Ah, look, it's Chris McCarthy. And Daniel Stern's like, Chris McCarthy? He's like, oh, you're not still mad about the Buckner thing. Apparently, he's the bad luck guy. He's the bush. He was the bad luck guy, yep. He's, you know, and then, of course, the Jazz make this huge comeback in the second half. And suddenly, the game is tied. And they all look around like, what changed? And they look up, and they're like, I think you better go, Chris. They're like, are you serious? They're like, yeah, I think you better go. They start throwing food at him. Throwing food at him. He's like, I'm not leaving. Then all of a sudden, the Jazz score another basket, and they pretty much run him out of the Boston Garden. Now, if Miami fans cared at all, they would look at Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez, and they'll go, Derek, Alex, I I think you better go. If this was Boston, oh, they would have been like run out on a rail. They'd be on the cover of, of the Herald the globe they've been to cover all of them as absolute pariahs even if the series was just 3-1 that loss would be laid at their feet if the the roles were reversed how hard is wick working right now to try to get them to boston <laughs> for game five i mean what 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 if they were at game six like so let's say and, and i'm not before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of this what if this series goes six what if they're there I mean, because we see a lot of kind of the same, you know, like Portnoy has been at like every Celtics game. Uh, Robert Kraft's had a lot. Julian Edelman. Like you see guys will go to multiple playoff games. I mean. Usually Donnie uh, Wahlberg. Yeah, there's there's OTAs and minicamps happening. Like, are we going to see some Patriots there? Like, you know, Juwan Bentley could be there. or You know, I mean, so, some of these guys will go to like every home playoff Celtic game that they can. Like, is there a chance? And I mean, they're they're both Miami guys now. Is there a chance they go to game six? And if so, like, what is the reaction? So let's second quarter Jumbotron. They show the celebrities there and they show A-Rod and they show Jeter. 
like they're gonna get booed out of the building, right? Because if this is in, if we're in game six, and it's suddenly a three-two game, and they're looking at the prospect of we lose tonight, we're going back to Boston for seven. And we just saw what they did in the game seven. If if people in South Beach cared at all, they would boo them out of the building. That being said, they all have tans, gold watches, and millions of dollars in the bank, and they don't care. That is all probably true. And it's Lashing funny, out, but it's fine. There was a lot. I don't know if I've ever, and I'm not a Twitter guy per se. I got a few people like, oh, let me see what so-and-so said about something on like a big game day or something. Or I'll hop on the Instagram. And I've never seen over the last 24 to 48 hours more clips of Kevin Mala going, don't let us win tonight. Hey, don't let us win tonight. It was tonight. everywhere. It was PD tomorrow, everywhere. shilling in six. Anything can happen in game seven. Don't let us win tonight. And his rationale was sound, and it sounds prophetic. And it's eerily the, similar the, to this Celtics team. In a way, the big difference being they kind of really started it with the two wins in Boston. And, and Millar lays out the path. Mm-hmm. He's like, we win tonight. We have Pedro tomorrow. We have Schilling in game six. And in game seven, anything can happen. It's exactly what happened. Was Pedro was great. I mean, obviously one you know, late in extras. Schilling puts out an ungodly performance in, in the bloody sock game. And then game seven, yeah, anything can happen. I mean, the Red Sox can score dozens what, of Two runs. grand slams. Yeah, just blood. You know, Johnny Damon's going to hit two home runs and six RBIs in the first uh you know, three innings of the game. Poppy's going to hit a home run eight seconds after the game start. Yeah, anything could happen. Derek Lowe is going to, you know, on no rest, is going to throw you six shutout. This time, I, I don't, I want to see the path. And I want what we saw last night. And what it was was, as you said, the Celtics were the Celtics. The Celtics are more aggressive. Like, one of the most confounding guys of this confounding Celtics team is Jalen Brown. And Jalen Brown last night went to the basket like he is an elite NBA player. And there's times Jalen Brown looks like he's absolutely unstoppable. He looks like a guy Tatum, that's about him had. Yeah, he looks like a guy that's about to get $50 million a year. 100%. And there's times where he's aggressive. When he drives to the basket, guys bounce off him. It's not to compare him to LeBron, but with his build, I mean, stop him. How on earth do you stop him driving to the basket with a head of steam? And we saw the dunk last night, which I really think, I mean, that was at a crucial point where it's like, oh, they just took the lead, and now they you know, got this dunk. They got a little momentum. They're high-fiving on the sidelines. That was the first moment I think Miami went, oh, maybe we're not just going to salt this team away tonight. He was the one that epitomized to me the change we may have seen last night was he looked completely different. Before it looked like he was looking to pass. He looked uncertain. He was turning the ball over. He wasn't finishing with authority. Last night, he looked like a different player. And they have to have that for the next three games if there's going to be three more games. Yeah, and I mean, Boston is a team that, you know, live by the three, die by the three. They shoot whatever, anywhere from... 30 to 40 to 53 is a game. And there's a stat. I think they're like 38 and two 
this season when they shoot 40% from three, which they did last night. I mean, it's no secret when you shoot at that volume and you make a lot. And Miami cooled down a little bit. Still, for whatever reason, you know, Gabe Vincent is like the greatest player in the series still. Don't know how that's going, but it is. You know, Jimmy Butler was not great. He got a bunch of free throws, got up to his 29 points, but wasn't necessarily, you know, super efficient. The writing's there, and I loved, I heard Al Horford, uh, what is it, MSNBC, talk to him before. Like, how much, how much nerves are there coming into this game, knowing, need to win to save off elimination? He's like, zero. Like, we've sucked. It, the pressure's all on them to finish us off at this point. No one's expecting us anything from us anymore. And they asked him kind of the same after they won last night. It's like, hey, is it still the same? He's like, zero pressure. They're the ones that have to put us away. It's a good way to look at it. And it does come down to three-point shooting, but it's how they get those shots. In the first three games, they they looked tentative driving to the basket. Like, they would drive to, you know, say, just inside the free-throw line and then turn around and look to slowly dump the, dump the ball off. Last night, guys were driving to the basket, getting almost to the rim, and then firing passes out to wide-open shooters. You know, Derek White shot a couple of threes. I mean, he had six seconds to shoot the ball. Wide open. So I think their looks get better the more aggressive they are on offense, and I think that would be the word I would use. Is they haven't been as aggressive. They're getting the same amount of threes, but I think the quality of shot was improved last night. And it is interesting to hear that Miami's shooting wasn't that much worse. It just seemed in the flow of the game, their shooting seemed for the first time, it was like the Russians cut. Not to go into another Stallone movie, but they've knocked down everything they've seen. Every time Jimmy Butler's needed a big shot, he's hit a big shot. Every time Vincent has a chance to tee up a big shot, it seems like he's hit every one of them. They've been in crucial spots. One of the hottest shooting teams we've seen a Celtics team encounter in the postseason. And last night it was the first night where a couple of those shots you go, ah, they're going to hit this, and you know they'll they'll you know bring the lead back up to nine, or they'll hit this, and boom, it's a two possession game. And they just they didn't hit any of those, and especially in the fourth quarter, it seemed like they went completely stone cold. Where I mean, the game was still in doubt, but they couldn't hit those shots to get it under seven points, eight points. It was constantly a nine to twelve point lead, and the Celtics were able to keep the pressure on. So, not that startling a difference, but it does feel different, right? It, it feels like you know Butler had twenty nine, but it was it was a different twenty nine. It wasn't him just knocking down big shots in Grant Williams' face all night. Yeah, they were what eight of thirty two, about twenty five percent. Last night, as opposed to game three, they shot 54% from three, <laughs> 19 of 35. I think Udonis Haslam was seven of eight from three that uh, game. Duncan Robinson is just unguardable. Oh, and those things God. happen. I mean, remember game seven against Milwaukee last year and Grant Williams went off for, was it six three-pointers or something? I mean, like guys can have big games in the playoffs when you're not guarding them, but I mean, that was just a, a gluttony of 
everyone that Spolster put in the game was knocking down three or four three-pointers. And given a lot of that was also helped by the fact that the Celtics rolled over in like the second quarter. So a lot of those were wide open, easy shots, which was the big thing I thought in game four was the fact that when they would hit a few offensive lulls, which they did for the first time in the series, the defensive intensity stayed up. It didn't go down with the offense, which was a big improvement over the previous games. Tom, let's look at So we recorded this on Wednesday nights. And two weeks ago, when we recorded this podcast, we were covering the Celtics in dirt. They just lost game five to Philadelphia in what we thought was the worst performance we could see from this Celtics team. They're going to Philadelphia for game six, down three to two, in a series where if a couple of very small things go differently, they sweep Philadelphia. But instead, they're down 3-2 in an embarrassing laugher where they were down 30 almost all night and they end up getting beat by 20-some-odd points. And as we discussed that game, and we hammered them, rightfully so, for the first 25 minutes of this podcast. And this isn't just me saying, I told you so, but I said, but all of that being said, they could absolutely win in Philadelphia and then come back and win in Game 7. Like, the season is not over. I think now, if we look at last week, they lost game one to Miami while we recorded this podcast. And we kind of looked at it as, man, they really didn't play that good down the stretch. Miami is pretty hot. Oh, that's the kind of game Miami has to play if they're going to beat this team. And yeah. we're thinking in our heads, Celtics bounce back in game two. Yeah, they're coming off only a short rest. Miami had a longer rest. Sure. Intense game they did seven. Every, everything Miami needed to go right went right. And these things happen. So now I'm trying to think in comparison to both of those, how I feel now about the Celtics. And it's kind of the reverse of two weeks ago where we're absolutely burying them. I think my optimism for the epic comeback to, you know, go seven and, and to win this series and come back from three Oh, first time in NBA history is that we saw two weeks ago. Didn't matter. They could go on the road. They could get a win. But also, I mean, this team has a losing record at home this postseason. They're what, four and five? Uh, how have they lost five home games in a postseason? It, it's, it's Especially almost when a, what? They, they lost, lost two games at home. I want to say they lost eight home games all year in the regular season. Yeah. They've almost matched that in the postseason, including, and this is what terrifies me about you know, tomorrow night, is that in most instances you would say, okay, the easy part is winning game five at home. The difficult part is once you get to six is winning in Miami and prolonging it again. Now winning four games in a row is difficult regardless, unless you're Denver playing the Lakers, but I digress. But just as easy as they turned it around against Philadelphia, the tide could turn again in game five in Boston. So I want to take the good mojo and the good vibes that we have from last night. But man, there's a part of me that goes, I don't know how far that goes tomorrow night. It's true. And especially when you think if they lose last night, I think second row Joe is gone. I think if they lose last night, they probably look to move Jalen Brown. 
you know, getting swept out of the Eastern Conference Finals, this big thing. Now, I don't know how much, if any, that's changed. I think tomorrow's game will be a huge indicator. I think if they get blown out at home again or lose at home again, six home losses and they're out in a gentleman's sweep to Miami, I think it could be eerily similar. I think Joe is still gone if they lose tomorrow. I think Jalen, I mean, God, Jalen's been so bad in this series. He did bounce back a little bit last game. And, you know, you hear all the talking heads talk about, ooh, you know, if maybe you package Jalen and try to get Damian Lillard and try to get a playmaker, which they don't, I mean, we've never really seen anybody have great success with winning a championship with two-star wings, wing players, without a playmaker, a point guard. You have the Miami team, LeBron and Wade, but I thought Wade is a, Wade is probably, and LeBron are better playmakers for other people than Tatum or Brown. Brown can't really dribble. No, that has been apparent. Uh, And Tatum's just not that guy creating for others. So maybe you bring in, you know, the Damian Lillard and people say, oh, but he's so much older. Like, who cares? The point is to win. Kevin Garnett was not young. Ray Allen were not young when, you know, they went out and got those two. So that wouldn't bother me. That's neither here nor there. Like I said, everything is going to kind of come down to what happens tomorrow. And I think it's not a coincidence that as soon as the Celtics went down three games to none and everyone was talking about, you know, Joe's going to be gone, all of a sudden you saw this kind of big push, like Milwaukee looking to try to lock in their next coach in the next few days down to Nick Nurse and somehow Doc Rivers on his ninth life. (laughs) And then shortly after that, you heard the Suns narrowed in on Nick Nurse and whoever it may be. I think that was the one that had Doc on on the finals list. I think those two, especially Milwaukee, if, and I think Nick Nurse is the guy they want, I think, they're going to push hard to get that done before we figure out whether the Celtics are going to need another coach. Because if the Celtics did go another route, I would think Nick Nurse would kind of be the perfect guy to bring in. We've done two straight rookie coaches. And, I mean, Ime did very well. Extenuating circumstances there. I don't think they'd sign up for a third straight rookie coach and Nick nurse is a guy who is known for X's and O's and being able to adjust and make things happen. And this Celtics team, when the going gets tough, all of a sudden it slows down and it's you go, I go, and there's no offense. I think they would love a guy who can scheme, who can, you know, bring a little discipline, who has a little gravitas 
with these guys, like a Nick Nurse. Is there a result besides going to the finals where Joe Mazzola does not get fired? I think if they win tomorrow and get to six, he's got a better chance where I could see them being like, okay, we're going to bolster up the coaching staff, which we talked about weeks ago, that they really failed him. They failed him. Zero support, zero veteran coaches on the bench to help him out. I could see them going that direction with one more win, maybe two. They can get you know, to a game six or a game seven, them saying, okay, let's give you one more shot. We're going to really put as much as we can around you, get the veteran guys, and give them another chance. Whether that's the right decision, I don't know. I, I've i texted you this week that I fear that they're going to give him one more and we're going to waste another prime, you know, Tatum, Brown, or whatever the combination is season with a guy that's just not quite ready for that big chair. You, know, you look at these guys that are around Spolstra. He's what started and was with Riley for whatever. It's been 20 years starting in the video room, working all his way up. Even Malone for Denver, how he's been in the league for 20, 30 years, different stops, assistance, working his way up. Joe Maz hasn't, and I'm not one of those people that says you have to put in your time and earn your spot. If you're ready, you're ready, but this year has shown that maybe he needs those extra years, and he's not quite ready. I think if they don't go to the finals, the only way he keeps is, I think, if they go seven. If they win game five in any fashion, and then I think if they get the win in game six and they're able to push this seven – I think you can look at it and you can take the redeeming qualities away from it and say, you know what? Things look bad down 3-0. They won three in a row. And as long as it doesn't come down to some real controversial, you know, unpantsing by Eric Spolstra where he just eats Joe Maz's lunch, I think they could look at it and go, okay, we can build off of this. Because the negative of moving on is that at that point, fair or unfair, you're looking at hiring your fourth coach in four seasons. And as you mentioned, you know, you're wasting another year of Tatum and Brown or whoever it is. We talk about it all the time in the NFL. You know, we talk about it a ton with Mac Jones is you wasted that second season where you're supposed to be developing by not giving him a coordinator. Well, what are you doing if you're perennially putting a different voice in Tatum and Brown's head every single season? The Adoka thing, it happened. You can't, you know, like that's a circumstance. Joe Matt, you thought you had your guy. You named him interim. You were kind of setting yourself up for this regardless because remember, I mean, they originally suspended Udoka for the season. You know, he was going to be coming back. So this was never going to be easy. This has been a difficult process, and I think we probably should try to remember that maybe a little bit more. But there's a fine line. Yeah, you would love the continuity, but at what price? If it's continuity for continuity's sake but what you're continuing isn't what you want then that doesn't make sense but at the same time you're not starting from scratch but 
you are starting over in a matter of speaking as well. I will say the canary in the coal mine could be now they would probably do this ahead of time, but I don't see it. If they lay out the situation, like you said, if they make a big blockbuster trade and they bring in a Damian Lillard, they're going to have a different coach. If they're starting over in, in certain areas of roster construction, they will have a different coach. If they're going to go for continuity, I think that's the only chance that, that Joe Missoula has. And coming into play may just be what happens with the other teams. If this goes six or seven, and all of a sudden Nick Nurse is gone, and Monty Williams is gone, and maybe even if you're a Kenny Atkinson guy, he's gone, and you're looking around saying, oh, what are the veteran options? Are we gonna are we gonna flirt with bringing freaking Doc Rivers back? God, <laughs> then you might just be like, okay, let's see if we can bolster and give Joe Maz one more one more season. That would be wild. And by the way, I don't think the Kenny Atkinson fans would be happy the way. Uh, I mean, there was a snort of derision the way you said his name there. Just cause I don't. Uh, I, I think like, we have I, listeners that are probably big Kenny Ad- Atkinson advocates. You know what? I really enjoyed the Nets team that he had that he got a lot out of, and then Kyrie and Durant came in and were like, no, F that guy, he's gone. I don't care that he got this team with nobody farther than anybody could have predicted. Now we're here and we want Steve Nash, who we'll throw under the bus a year and a half from now. But but I think, but I think that's what you have to look at, and, and what the Celtics did was they fell in love with the regular season performance with a small sample size. You look to the Celtics of the regular season where you're right, they didn't lose home games and they had a, a you know, great season, finished the two seed. Everything seemed to be kind of rolling and you liked everything about this guy. That's the hard part is that you you look at an Atkinson and you say, hey, look what he did. He had nothing in this season. But I mean, it's always tempered by your expectations. Everyone thought the second they traded Durant and they traded Kyrie that the team would cease to exist and be relegated. They played better. Well, is playing better if you're expected to win zero games enough to say, look, here's the keys to the Lambo. Don't wreck it. I, I don't know. I, right. I don't know. The and I mean, he that, spent but. what the last three years or whatever it's been with Golden State, which, you know, take that for what you will. Brown like Shanahan coaching tree. Anyone who, who's had a cup of coffee with Steve Kerr. Or Mike Steph Brown Curry, has bounced back and had a great year with Sacramento. Luke Walton went to the Lakers and was abysmal. So, you know, it's it's hit or miss. I do like the fact that Atkinson turned down jobs last year. It's like, no, I'll just stay with Golden State. It shows that he's not desperate and he's waiting for, for a good fit. Um, but, yeah, I think to, a lot will be ready to be talked about after tomorrow. Good, bad, indifferent. I don't know, but a lot. I want to hit a quick football thing before we get into our uh, summer blockbuster. Some NFL rule changes that nobody (laughs) seems to be happy about. A new kickoff rule, similar to college football. Now, any touchback or any fair catch, and you now automatically get it at the 25. So, now the team's where you would, you know, had kickers who could strategically go for that high kick that comes down right at the three so you can 
try to pin them back a little farther. Try to get yourself maybe a turnover, a strip, something like that. No, just fair catch, and you still get it at the 25. I just don't like it because it kind of takes away special teams. Yeah, essentially. Though, I think what you're going to see, and, and this is what we saw when they made touchbacks at the 25. Uh, I mean, Belichick was doing this three or four years ago where they were consistently kicking it high, short, and it was like, wow, you're giving them the ball at the 10, but then you realize that you had you know, your your special team, your kickoff team uh, set up, and you were dropping them at the 15 every time. And, and they were. They were getting... Uh, at the beginning, when they first started doing it, you were seeing fumbles. You were seeing people botch it because they're not used to coming that far forward, fielding the ball. I mean, you know, kick returns, it is very routine where they stand at the goal line. And if it's over the head, they let it go. They put their arms out, they let it go. But if they come forward at all, it's usually a couple steps and they're going to return it. What we're going to see is I think you're going to see more kickoffs. They're going to be kind of that low skimmer because I don't believe that you can call fair catch on one that hits the ground. So I think you're going to see some of these like line drives that you're going to make the defense field or the, the return team field. The difficulty with that is, I, I think, unless these kickers are practicing that, that's that's a skill because you have to avoid that front line. It, it seems obvious that you wouldn't want to kick it right at that front line because you're giving the team the ball at the 40-yard line. But you, know, you try to get too cute. You know, We see teams do that before halftime where they try to kick that low squibber to kill the rest of the clock. And it hits, you know, one of the front lines of the return, and the team gets the ball at the forty, ends up with a, a quick field goal. So I'll be interested to see how teams handle kickoffs. I, I don't necessarily like it. I get it, but man, how frustrating is it going to be when your team returns a kick and they don't make the twenty-five? It already drives me nuts if it's close and they pull it out of the end zone and they get dropped at the nineteen. I'm like, you just gave up six yards of field position and had a chance of fumbling there. I think you're going to see kick returners terrified to take a chance. Yep. And what? Will we see two kick returns for touchdowns all next season? I mean, we saw almost none this year. And then, I mean, until the Patriots let Nakeem Hines uh, you know, take two back in week 18. But, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see that. You know what I think we're going to see as a byproduct? This is remember when they moved the extra point back to the 35 or to, to a 35 yard kick. We start seeing extra points miss. We see field goal percentage go down. I think we're going to see more muffed punts. I think we're going to see more mishandled punts. I think we're going to see a lot more indecision in that area. Um, a lot more fair catches or botch fair catches. I think there's going to be a trickle down to the other way because guys aren't returning as many kicks. I mean, it used to be when you kicked off and a guy was going to return it, I mean, there was no one within 25, 30 yards of him. When they, the moment he caught the football, there was no pressure on it. So now really the only kicks that some of these guys are going to be facing is with hands in their face and gunners bearing down on them. So I, I do think there'll be a, a bit of a, a trickle down in, in that area. Um, one other thing Tom wanted to touch on before we move into Cobra. It's just a weird one. I haven't really talked talked out about this may write about it soon in in the blog tom brady gets a minority stake of the las vegas raiders but will have no say in the team or its operations which do you know the the list of former players who have had a ownership stake in an nfl team 
very small? It's two. George Hallis and Jerry Richardson. It's like the only two players who have had an ownership stake in an NFL team. So you're right. In, incredibly rare. It seemed like there'd be more. I, I figured. I mean, what? Point, Magic Peyton, Johnson owns part of like 17 different professional teams. Well, and, and that's my thing. You know, so I think about it from, okay, first from the standpoint of a Patriots fan. How do I feel about Tom Brady being a minority owner of the Raiders? A team that, I mean, is essentially owned since the tuck rule. Um I care in that I kind of wish he had a part of the Patriots, you know, just to keep him in, in the family. But at the same time, I mean, I sleep just fine every night knowing that LeBron has a portion of the Fenway sports group, which owns the Boston Red Sox. So, you know, ipso facto LeBron is a minority owner in the Red Sox, you know? So at a certain point, it's so infinitesimal. It really doesn't matter. One of my thoughts though is, so how does this work with the Fox gig? This so came up Fox next year. He has, you know, there's, th- so we're supposed to believe that if he's calling a Raider game, he's a hundred percent impartial, even though he has a minority stake that, I don't know. It, it seems like a strange conflict that the NFL, you know, and all their wisdom of gambling and, and the best interest of the sport. I don't know. That, that strikes me as, as odd. I believe they, it came up when this whole thing, started to break whatever it was a week or two ago. And Fox said they would have no issues with it because is not in a position to influence anything either way, blah, blah, blah. So at least for now, and I mean, you know this, it's been highly debated whether or not he will ever see an actual Fox broadcast or not. But he was given a full blessing from Fox to invest with the Raiders, is what they said. It was checked with. No problem. Clear with Fox, the broadcasting contract to invest. I think, see, I think, I think the Fox thing is going to happen. Will he, if it's what a 10 year deal, will he go all 10 years? I, I have no idea. Do I think he's calling games? I'm not going to say, I, I know for a fact he will be doing games in 2024 as reported, but I think he, he will call games. I fully believe that he, he will call games in the booth for Fox. Yeah. It says the uh, NFL's policy on team ownership doesn't show any roadblocks. It's never happened. Like no, nobody wanted George. Ha- no, well, <laughs> like TV was in right. infancy when George Hallis took over. And, According I mean, to, we, we, we heard a little bit from Jerry Richardson, and no one liked that. So. Yeah. According to the rules, it's not a conflict of interest for a member of the media to be a part owner, except when they hold a position of power in a media company, which could affect have effects on broadcast rights negotiations. So two other ways to sort of look at that as well, and, and that's good to know the kind of the letter of the law on that is from a business perspective, Tom Brady getting the stake. I mean, this is brilliant. So he has a stake in the Raiders. Mark Davis, we, like we know that. I might have I more liquid money in my bank account than Mark Davis. A hundred percent. Mark Davis, and this is part of the reason that he was selling a stake in the team, Mark Davis is not going to be able to 
you know, pay the inheritance taxes on the Raiders, the stadium. The, I mean, it's a $2 billion stadium. Like, there's no way Mark Davis is going to be able to afford all that. So Tom Brady is going into a franchise that is in Las Vegas, which is now beyond bustling. You have the A's coming in. You have the Golden Knights could be going to another Stanley Cup final. I mean, an NBA team very, will be there in the next, I would say, five years. So he is on the ground floor. If this team goes to market and, and goes up for sale, he's kind of in the catbird seat to become a part of whatever that ownership group looks like. Plus, let's be honest. Can't you just see Tom Brady being just a real weird guy in Vegas? Like that's where his midlife crisis goes next. A lot of like half unbuttoned shirts, gold chains, walking around the casino floor. So it wasn't the blockbuster this week, but I did uh, finally watch the Elvis movie that came out uh, last year. So yeah, very in tuned with the the stylings of Vegas. So I don't think Tom is like the the fat Elvis phase in Las Vegas, but uh, yeah, I, I we could see uh, a couple of buttons undone there at the top. I'm not saying gold medallion, but I mean that tan is going to be bronze, and we are going to know a lot about his dating life. All right. Shall we move on? We shall. To our new segment for the summer. We hit it last week. The summer blockbuster where we go over a classic movie that Sterling has never seen before. And we get his instant reactions. And I'm very excited. This week we went with, it's considered now a cult classic, even though I think it actually made a, good amount of money so i don't think it can be a cult classic when you make money in the beginning but I mean, it's uh, stallone in 85 so like there there was like a, a very high floor for like how little i mean you think about this in in stallone iconography like this is around the same time as rocky four so like right rambo after. what right rambo one and two were out at this point maybe yep. one two and three so i mean he was the creme de la creme. I mean, he could make anything in 85, and it probably would have had a pretty good opening weekend. Yeah, this was this was probably the peak of his powers in terms of getting something made, in terms of, like, blockbuster anticipation. Because he had had... So Rocky Three was 82, and then First Blood... Then he took a little dip because he went with staying alive in Rhinestone. Ooh. But then yeah. came back with Rambo First Blood Part 2, Rocky 4, then Cobra. It had just an unbelievable movie poster because that was at a time when the movie poster did a lot of the selling. If it wasn't a preview, sure. you went to the movie, and this is obviously before you or I were even born, but knowing and going being a, a movie guy that I am, this was a time where you saw the previews before a movie at the movie theater, or you saw the movie posters hanging up in the movie theater to show it was coming. And someday when I have extra space, I will have a Cobra movie poster hanging up. This is one, because one of the things 
so we were obviously similar age. One of the things that we, we both had, I'm sure, was when you went to the video store, like, and this is one of the things I want to do with, with this entire project of seeing movies I haven't seen, is some of the boxes I remember at the video store that were things like Cobra, which, I mean, when I was going to the video store at seven or eight years old, I was certainly not renting Cobra. Uh, but I saw the box a zillion times. And there's a lot of these movies where I passed the box every time I walked into Mountain Video or Video Network in Kingfield, Maine. Uh, it was like, oh, I wonder what that one's about. I mean, and Cobra confused the hell out of me as a five and six year old because I was big into G.I. Joe and the bad guy in G.I. Joe was Cobra. And on this box, uh, Marion Cabretti looks like a badass G.I. Joe. He's got the gun. It's got a laser. He's got stubble. He's chewing on a match. I mean, I, like, oh, he looked like a cool G.I. Joe character. I meant to grab Cobra. a match stick and put it in my mouth for this segment of the podcast, <laughs> and I forgot. <clears throat> yeah, this was supposed to be like he had his boxer. He had his soldier. Yep. This was Sylvester Stallone as a cop. And this was supposed to be that third franchise where there was going to be, you know, four Cobras. And it just never happened. And originally, Stallone was pegged for Beverly Hills Cop. And he did a rewrite of the script for Beverly Hills Cop. And like, and the producers never like, dude, this is too violent, too dark, no humor. And kind of last minute, they go out and they get Eddie Murphy. But Stallone still loved the script that he did, and that in turn turned into Cobra. Cobra was more or less Stallone's idea for Beverly Hills Cop. (laughs) Which, was it you that was telling me that this was originally, because this is a, so the killers, the the whole nine in the movie, uh, I wouldn't call it graphic, but there was a certain creepiness factor to sure. the killers because they use blades and axes, uh, a lot of aggression. I mean, they would hack through cars to get in and kill people with these really like nasty looking serrated blades. And yeah, they really cast a light on, on blades and whatnot. There's the scene where the guy is uh, soaked in sweat and has this just maniacal look on his face as he's sharpening his hook bladed dagger thing. Um, so there was a certain creepers, but, but was it you that was telling me that this movie was like, you know, rated NC-17 or, I mean. Yeah, it was some... originally given an X rating, and they had to go in and tweak it to get it back to rated R. And it was also, because, so you have the New World, which is this cult of serial killers, which seems kind of like an oxymoron because serial killers are usually on their own. Watch any documentary. They're pretty much solo and in cults at that time. I mean, no one was still thinking of like Charles Manson or groups of psychos who killed people. And pretty much throughout the movie, the only thing we know about the new world is that they get together, hang out and bang axes together. Yeah. What the hell was that? Like, so the opening and then this will kind of merge two thoughts I had together here in my notes. Um, yeah. Them clanking axes and, and I think there were swords and blades together in some sort of a warehouse, which I mean, glad that the, uh, psycho killer cult has uh, a clubhouse. 
and they're just like kind of not rhythmically chanting they're kind of just hoeing and lightly clanking axes together like a, a psycho cheerleading squad sort of thing but we're supposed to be terrified of this meanwhile the music over the top of it is like the Miami sound machine it's very synthy like leftover tunes from Beverly Hills Cop that they didn't want to use pre-shakedown um so we have these psychos clinking axes. Meanwhile, Gloria Stefan um, is talking about like angels in the streets. Yeah, we know, and we really, for the entire movie, know nothing really about the new world. No. What their goal was, what they didn't like. We know nothing. Well, and because all, all, we, all, all we know is that one woman saying, it's our plan, it's our dream, or whatever, you know, carry out the plan because we don't want it to all go away. We don't know what that is. And the only reason we know that, like, I didn't really know until you just said that they were actually called the New World because there is the, the, the New Order of the World, or not to be confused with the New Sports Order, but the New Order of the World is that X, Y, and Z. And the two psychos during their standoffs with Cabretti both say this is the new world not we are the new world we are the children we're i'm not going to sing the song yeah. but but you get the idea you're right they, they don't they're, they're not clear about that we have no idea like, and what I think their motivation is outside of bloodlust a lot of it is originally the first cut of the movie was about two hours and 20 minutes way too long for this movie and I agree. I think it's it's tight for what it is. It's great. Like 85 minutes at this point. But Stallone and the producers were so worried about getting their asses kicked by Top Gun, which was coming mm-hmm. out at the same time. Sure. That right at the last kind of stretch, they went in and cut out whatever it was, about 40 minutes of the movie to cut it down closer to an hour and a half so they could get more plays in a day in the theater so it wasn't so lopsided. So they could use those That's extra plays to get people in so it didn't look so bad compared to Top Gun. Yeah, if you told me that this movie was 220, like it would not have come up as quickly on this list. I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, I want to watch Cobra because I was looking at going, nah, it's it's kind of short. Like let's let's go with this. We'll sort of mix it up. If it was two twenty, this would have taken some some convincing. Yeah. So I think we lost some decent amount of the story, probably of of them. But hey, for what Cobra but, is, you don't need it. Well, okay. So that leads me to a question here. I have written at the the top of my notes: uh, Is Cobra a Christmas movie? I think this Despite is a lot of the uh, fantastic, God, the product placement in this movie. Yes, is I have that written down too. Out of this world with Pepsi, Pepsi? signs. Is it, is it just Pepsi? Well, there's the full Toys R Us commercial when yeah. <laughs> Cobretti turns on the TV after eating a very small slice of frozen pizza, still frozen, that he, that he cut cuts with, with scissors. scissors. Meanwhile, because I wasn't sure what he was doing, because he also pulled out an egg carton that had, like, gun cleaning equipment in it. that he kept also in the freezer. Which I was like, is there some relation to this? I'm like, oh, no, no, he's just eating pizza like a psychopath. Uh, Yep, I I enjoyed the throwback Toys R Us Christmas commercial. 
But yeah, uh, the I've, whole I've they showed the again. full like twenty five second commercial, and then the news came on. I was like, oh, maybe maybe Marion Cabretti's just a Toys R Us kid. Yeah, I wrote down. You know, this movie once again brought to you by Pepsi because you had not only the standoff in the beginning of the movie in the grocery store, which you know it's a grocery store, I get it, but not only was he by a Pepsi cooler, which there was other sodas, or you saw Seven Up and you saw some others, but then he's behind the big Pepsi display where. There's some being poured into a giant Pepsi cup while also drinking a Coors Tall Boy. <laughs> so you can well, see the. A, he has to take a haul off it before he can throw it on the ground. To logo the perfectly placed guy. while he drinks that Tall Boy. <laughs> warm. He just pulled that off like yeah, a pal. Warm. Um, and then you also, outside of his apartment, which I want to talk about too, a uh, giant glowing Pepsi sign, just totally out of the blue as he's like escaping in, in the middle of the night. Uh, I want to talk about his apartment. We mentioned like it's a trope in cop movies that the cop has a social life that's kind of out of order. You know, they're living in a bachelor pad. Um, you know, the apartment's a mess. His apartment's a mess and he's eating pizza with scissors. But he also has like a billion dollar view. So for this like rundown looking interior apartment that as you see when he bumps the uh, gangbanger's car out of the way, which by the way he's driving a 1950 Mercury, little strange even in 1985. He bumps these gangbangers out of the way, so you're thinking, oh, this apartment is is complete garbage, and then you see ah, it's messy. It's a cop's apartment in the 80s, and you look out the window and he's got like a view of Malibu. I was like, well, this just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and at the same time, somehow is more equipped to handle that, to handle his detective work at home. When Brigitte Nielsen puts uh, has the sketch of the Night Stalker or the Night Slasher, by the way, (laughs) he's like, "I'm going to go back to my apartment and run this through my files." And goes back to his apartment to go through files as opposed to the police station. So your point about Beverly Hills Cop makes a lot of sense because this movie being in California makes no sense. Like, it's a dark movie. It's a dark, you know, kind of cop movie. It has to feel like it should be in Chicago or New York. I was going to say maybe even like Miami or something. It, it does not feel like it should be in Los Angeles, but it feels like that's like the leftover from him writing what he thought was Beverly Hills cop. He's just going, yeah, yeah, we'll put it in California. It's like, okay, well that, that doesn't make sense. Like Mary Cabretti should not be looking out at, you know, the ocean from his apartment just outside of Beverly Hills. It feels like it should be in philadelphia or it should be in chicago or new jersey or or something like grittier because the rest of the movie is in that sense very gritty um yeah we talked about the music the music doesn't really fit it's all very like synthy which i get it's the mid 80s that's kind of the sound um wasn't a fan of it want to talk about so you, you mentioned brigitte nielsen so Weird second, fact, she's 22. Yeah, second straight movie he has put his real life girlfriend in. Well, there. So I looked it up, and I don't know obviously the timeline of like when what was shot. I think what they met and fell in love like on Rocky Four. I th- when she was like 
21. I think they were dating before and he put her in Rocky four. Don't quote her me. in. And then, and then he, he put, put her, her in Cobra. Cobra as well. So I looked up, they were only married for 19 months. So, so she made two movies dating and married to Stallone. And, and you wonder, as I, as I looked it up watching the movie and like the second half, I'm like, I wonder where it kind of went wrong here, but yeah, just crazy. She was only 22. Just maybe it's because she was tall. Just, you know, seemed maybe it was eighties makeup. I don't know, but uh, I, I did like that. There's the scene uh, in the hospital where the bad guys are coming to get her and they perfectly reshot the iconic uh, shot from the shining where in the shining it's Shelley long is by the door and you see Jack Nicholson's axe like go through the door and she screams. They did. I mean, I think she was on the opposite side of the door, but the axe comes through and you see this just like shrill look of horror on her face. I'm like, wow, they absolutely ripped off that exact shot. Yeah. And I think she had that just horrible, like brunette wig throughout. Oh, so bad. Which I think I'm, I, my guess is, or theory is they wanted her to look as different as they could from being Drago's wife because it was so close. They didn't want like the short blonde hair that looks just like she did in Rocky four. They wanted her to look different, but ah, awful, awful wig. And this was like the height when they talk about, Oh, you know, the movie stars got out of hand. Like the number one movie they point to is Cobra because Stallone just comes in. They have a director, but really it's, it's Stallone and like multiple people have said, yeah, co-stars extras weren't allowed to talk to Sylvester Stallone. He was just, he was on quite the ego trip. Perhaps deservedly so. He was coming off a couple of heaters. Quite the the hot streak. And like at one point he complained to like the director, the producers, like, hey, this movie's fallen way behind. This isn't okay. And literally they said, this movie's falling behind because you're fooling around with your girlfriend every day and showing off for your security guards. (laughs) And I guess he was just like, okay, that's fair. And he straightened up for a couple weeks, and then it kind of went bad again after that. But yeah, he was he was on quite the uh, ego high, I guess, coming you, into this movie. You want, you want to know what the dead giveaway is? That Stallone is married to the love interest in real life, and it's probably a short term marriage. Is the inexplicable montage where? Stallone and the guy who played Poppy from Seinfeld, which is just a wild choice for his kind of accomplice. Um, two things. One, that there's the montage where they start like beating down doors to, uh, I believe it was uh, I know Angel of the City by Robert Tepper. And yeah. Brigitte Nielsen is doing a photo shoot to kind of get her over as this model, which by the way, with weird robots, with robots, just tons and tons of odd, odd robot. And she's, I think some of them were sexual robots that had breasts, a little sexual, but they were like, by the way, awkward, like almost like they were from the Jetsons in real life, like clunky. And 
I think it was like a Sylvester Stallone like heat check, like Rocky Four. Everybody loved the robot. robot. <laughs> Everyone loved the robot. We need more robots. A couple robots. Everyone loved uh, Polly's robot. You know, yeah, these are all just silver, and I don't know, it was, it was off-putting. Uh, fun fact there, just merging two things that I'm watching, is that the photographer uh, that's taking the pictures is Carl from Succession, which actually wraps up this coming uh, Sunday at HBO. So I'm like who watching then, this, and like, the sleazy photographer, you're like, I'm like, oh, hey, it's, it's, it's Carl. Yeah, who then the awkwardly, like, star. real, does not come off well in the Me Too era. No. As he's like, hey... No. You could really make it big and pretty much all you got to do is sleep with me. And he's like, look, don't do it for me. Do it for your career. (laughs) And the thing is, he doesn't like that character always dies. And I think like when they go to attack her in the parking garage, like they don't show him getting killed. Usually that is like the that's an easy kill in a movie like this. This is like, you know, you would just see like blood splatter. go, Oh, that guy's dead. But I, I think he weirdly sort of was, was spared there. Um, yeah, that's strange. That, that is the strangest whole, whole thing of the movie. A uh, couple other just real small points. Swing and a miss on the car. So a couple of aesthetic things that kind of bug me about Stallone's character in the movie. Um, this didn't bug me. Just a point I wanted to make. What did you say? You said a couple weeks ago, it's like they had a title and they found they had the perfect title and then they made a movie to the title. Yeah. This is one where Stallone found a look he liked. And this goes back to what we said about the poster being awesome. Stallone put on the mirrored shades with like a three day growth of a beard and a black jacket and jeans. It was like, oh, I can do something with this. Like he looked like he was a badass when he walked into the grocery store in the beginning and he leaves the sunglasses on like most of the scene in a dark grocery store. The entire like, movie, he's got he look. leaves the sunglasses like it, on. Like, like, it's a good look. Like, he's got a look to it. The match, kind of weird, but hey, it's it's sort of a signature. Comes into play later. Uh, the swing and the miss is he's driving a 1950 Mercury Monterey with a vanity plate that says Awesome 50. I think it's AWSOM 50. So it's kind of unique, but it's it's sort of a bulky, like you would equate it with like 1930s mobsters. It's a big, old, classic car. The movie's called Cobra. His nickname is Cobra. Couldn't we have just given him a Shelby Cobra? Like, well, why isn't he driving a Cobra? Here comes your fun fact. I needed this fun fact. I knew you'd have it. That was Sylvester Stallone's personal car. Of course, yeah, he wanted to use it. That was his, and they had to make three replicas of it for destroy it. Yeah, for all the crashing parts they use. But no, that was that is when you see him pulling up, and all the scenes where pretty much it doesn't wreck is Sylvester Stallone's personal car, and that was his choice, and he wanted to use that car. Doesn't work. Sorry, Sly. It it doesn't work. It just it it didn't fit. Like he should have had. If not a, a like a Shelby Cobra, he should have had a Chevy Asset, like a muscle. He felt like a muscle car guy. He felt like an '80s muscle car guy, which was also goes back to the trope of kind of the police movies of that time and even kind of into the '90s, 
where the cop that, you know, plays by his own rules gets to just drive the coolest car and gets to drive whatever they want. Everyone else is rolling in like a Lincoln police standard issue police car. But for some reason, this detective gets to drive whatever he wants. Well, he's on the zombie squad. Uh, Two more things. This is like the most granular. And this is how you can tell you we're almost to the end of of the notes I have here. They show Cabretti's watch at some point. And and I'm not sure it's really to tell what time it is. It's just one of those kind of like two second. He's wearing a tag Hoyer, which like a tag Hoyer now is like a, I mean, minimum of like, I don't know if you can get one for five grand. And, like, that's what this guy – I don't know. So, like, the ups and downs, like, I feel like that was just Sly's watch. Probably. It feels like he wore that too – like, this was not a prop. Like, Marion Cabretti wears a Timex or a Casio. Like, he is not wearing, a, a probably at that point, a $3,000 watch. The, the final, like, payoff scene, cool setting. It's, it's, it's a mill. It's very industrial. There's, there's hooks. Like, what were they manufacturing? Because everything's on fire or full of gasoline, yet there's one hilarious shot where there's a no smoking sign. And, like, literally everything around the no smoking sign is producing a flame. No cigarettes might interfere with all the the, the smoke in the air. Yeah. Like, what was that mill? <laughs> That's also a classic. He has, like, Terminator 2. <laughs> All these end in, like, this fiery pits of hell type factory. I think originally in the movie, it was supposed to end with kind of like a motorcycle chase on a ferry, like, between islands in, like, Washington. They were supposed to have gone off to, like, Seattle area, and it was supposed to end, like, on a ferry and a motorcycle chase, which sounded kind of cool. But that was supposed to be shot at night, and Sylvester Stallone decided he did not want to shoot at night because of the mosquitoes. Sure. So yeah, they re obviously. they redid the ending of the movie to be at the fiery hell warehouse that is also somehow in just the most rural of towns. Yeah, you know, it was a uh, it's a mill that produces fire. It's it's what they make there. With lots of um, also, meat yeah, hooks. Brigitte, Brigitte Nielsen, uh, one, the mill was closed, as you said, during the day. Maybe it was a Sunday. I don't know. There was a security guard there. But the mill is closed, yet Brigitte Nielsen is able to somehow by, I can't remember if she ran into, or no, someone shot a gun and like killed the security guard. He falls backwards, and by running into this instrument panel, turn the whole mill on. So suddenly the mill is on. These giant hooks, which again, we don't know what they were hooking. They hook the bad guy in the end, spoiler alert. They hook the bad guy and take him through this like wall of fire, which they really don't show. Probably could have. That was probably yeah, part of else, the uh, the edit to get it back to rated R. Sure, yeah. Oh, there, there's definitely a director's cut that Stallone has somewhere, probably with that tag Hoyer in some sort of a safe, uh, where they absolutely toast that bad guy. But yeah, no idea. I was trying to figure out like probably like a steel mill. Looked like there was some smelting going on. I, I don't know. It, it was very weird, but just everything was on fire. And uh, it, it made for a cool scene. 
but I couldn't help but just the whole time wondering, like, wait, what are they doing? Like, they were just sparks. And it looked cool, but I'm like, is someone over there with, like, an angle grinder? Like, what is... There's no one there. There's just sparks emanating. Yeah. Very curious. Best not to over-nitpick it. And now... (laughs) I I think we're there. And now Sylvester Stallone has a weird reality show with his daughters and wife. I'm sure you have not watched. It just I, came I out. Have not. I told. I, I have not. Will not. I, I gave him Cobra this week. I my uh, getting... Allie called me in the other day. He's like, have you seen this? I'm like, I have not seen it. I did know that it was coming. And I said, Hey, that's a mark of a nice dad. Cause I'm pretty sure Sylvester Stallone didn't go begging his daughters to do a reality show. Yeah. You know, which way that ask went. Yeah. And I just saw like a scene of, Hey, it's his 70th birthday and Dolph Lundgren's there and and sitting around the table. And you know, it's one of those where he's in the first episode where it's his birthday and his kids, but then like, he won't be in like another episode. He's like, all right, guys, like we did that party thing. Like I'm not, I helped you launch it. Now you got to try to keep this, keep this afloat. Or they just shot a bunch of stuff in one day and it's up to the editors to make it seem like it's different, different interviews with Sylvester Stallone at the course of a season. So, all right. So what's next? What, uh, what, what do we add into the the summer blockbuster? We've started a lot of texting this week. Uh, I mean, I have a notes app list going. I've, I've checked Cobra off the list. Um, which what, what what direction are we going in? I'm trying to think of what I added a whole bunch to my queue on Max, not HBO Max, just Max now. Yeah, I saw that as of what was it like today? Yeah, yeah I went to uh, I was watching the Elvis movie uh, yesterday, and I went to finish it last night, and suddenly it was like, oh no, HBO Max doesn't exist anymore. I was like, I beg yeah, like on my phone, it made me download a new app. Mm-hmm. Just the Max, at least the TV, at least the TV with those apps, it switched on its own. And that uh, was yeah, fine. Mine I, I, had to, I had to download a separate one on, on the TV, but was able to. But yeah, my phone made me done. download a new one. And then, oh God, now I got to figure out my logins. And uh, it didn't make me do a login. It just, it was pretty seamless, but um, anyway. Yeah. So we got to figure out, uh, figure out what's next. Well, we will uh, we'll put it out there. I won't throw anything out now because I don't remember off the top of my head which ones are currently streaming. And we have a nice list going because uh, I know some of them we put on there aren't streaming yet that we definitely want to get to. Some good ones, some Harrison Ford, some Nick Cage, some decent Nick Cage. Sterling's on the fence, though he put in Sterling put face off on the list, which is just... Is fantastic. That is face off. Con Air and The Rock are on the list. Yeah, but I'm not going. And even I'm dubious that I do not enjoy Nick Cage. So Con Air, The Rock are good. Nick Cage that I know wouldn't bother you. Face off. He starts. He starts getting a little weird. weird, But it's it's a just funny. I like Travolta, but that's kind of like I think the beginning of like the sort of weird Travolta run where it's like you didn't really know where he was coming from with some of those choices there in the, the mid to late 90s. Pretty much you can imagine um, if it's an early 90s Schwarzenegger or Stallone, like it's on the list. Yeah. I've seen Predator, I've seen Terminator 1 and 2, which I think I, I'm going to do this. This will be like an extra credit thing. I don't know how much we'll 
get into it on the pod because it's probably been done to death is like, I think I'm going to redo Terminator and Terminator two. Mm. It's like a bonus thing. I need to, it's been a while. I've seen Terminator a couple of times. I've seen two like once. Yeah. So I may need to do that in like a succession thing where I watch one and then the, ne- the next week watch the second one. Both classics. But yeah, like I said, I, and we're still adding stuff to the list. I want you to see The Fugitive at some point. And yep, it usually pops in and out of being on streaming. So hopefully that'll come back here. It was just on something the other day. I saw it on one of my lists. But yeah, ch- check out the the Max has a ton of stuff. Even some stuff like well, they Butch probably Cassie just Sundance yeah. Kid and Cool Hand Luke and some of those. I'm like, okay, definitely never seen any of those. Yeah, HBO Max. Um, well, sorry, Max. God, what a stupid why why drop HBO? I get it. So I, I guess it's just because yeah they added because they more added content, Discovery so. and all them and yeah. kind of like the annoying you know sibling like no I want my name in there too. And then, fine, nobody gets a name. Nobody's name. We're just going to be Max. <laughs> Max is a name. <laughs> but no, they have a lot of good stuff going for movies right now. Netflix is, you know, hit or miss. I know Heat is on there, but that's a long, such a good movie, but that's a long watch at almost three hours. Yeah, there, there's one that I added to to my list that I've not seen, and again, it was it maybe why because it's three hours is uh, Braveheart. Never seen Braveheart, but it yeah, it's clocking in at like three hours and two minutes. I'm like, oh, that's like a week. Yeah, maybe we'll see if uh, the second. I think the second and third Diehards are currently streaming. Are they? Okay. Yeah, th- those I are on the think. list. Num- number two and three. I've obviously seen the first one many, many times, um, but I've never ventured past that. So I don't know. Maybe three might be uh, my favorite. Okay. Maybe. Well, I mean, I got to do it in order. Maybe maybe Die Hard 2 is, th- is this week. It's very possible. All right. Leading contender. We will uh, we'll let you know where we end up with next week's summer blockbuster. Next week, we'll know the fate of the Celtics. <laughs> Which was funny that the NBA Finals don't start till next Thursday. And if the Heat had won yesterday, they couldn't move it up. So it was going to be a week and a half of nothing. And then be like, hey, here's the NBA Finals. Get excited again. So I'm sure the NBA is just rooting for the Celtics to at least win one more. So they don't have this massive gap between the conference finals and the finals, well, which makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. We might get some Scott Foster, maybe some home cooking. I mean, I'm okay with some questionable officiating, you know, make sure you check so, out all of Sterling's columns on the social medias. What is it? Uncommon media VT on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. The NSO pod also on Facebook is on there. Man, interact. Send us some messages. If you have movie suggestions, send them to us on there. Just think, you know, 80s, 90s action flicks. Chances are Sterling didn't get to see them. (laughs) Though, you know what I did see uh, earlier today is I did see uh, Fast 10. So I'm I'm all caught up on no spoilers. I have no spoilers, but I will say um, I have heard things, but 
there is something in the credits, I, which I was glad that no one spoiled it for me. But yeah, de- definitely stay like it wasn't it wasn't after the credits, but like yeah, it's that weird halfway three quarter. Yeah, like and I, I did changes, I could not avoid that spoiler, so I know what that is. But I, I avoided it. There was two. I did there's hear two, there's two big surprises that are that are awesome. So I did hear that pretty much Jason Momoa stole the show. That he was just an elite heel. He's uh it is not what you think he's gonna be, and you don't really know how you feel about it after, but it's entertaining. And yeah, I, I won't give any spoilers, even though I did just see a headline that got me very excited about um the fate of the furious. So Ooh. Maybe we'll talk after we hit stop hitting record. Uh that wraps things up. We will be back next week with another episode of the New Sports Order. This has been a production of Uncommon Media.